You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So the Friday after Thanksgiving marks the first official day of the Christmas season. Now I know some of you start celebrating like around Halloween and some of you are really pushing it like in September. But the first official day is the day after Thanksgiving. And each year you can bet the Patronellas are going to go and pick out a balsam fir and spend the day watching Christmas movies and decorating our tree. Now this tradition of decorating Christmas trees actually goes all the way back to the 16th century in Germany. And Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, is actually credited with adding lights to the tree. And so as the story goes, he was on his way home on a winter evening. And he, as he was walking, he was awed by the brilliance of stars twinkling amidst the, the evergreens. And so to recapture this scene for his family... They had a a decorated Christmas tree. He fixed candles, you know, wired them to the branches with uh, with candles and lit them up. And a new Christmas tradition was born. Now, immediately, you can see the problem. (laughs) Dried pine needles and open flame can quickly become a bonfire in your living room. But this happened. This was like, this was widespread. People were doing this all the time now you can't leave it lit up and you know leave it lit up at night as you go to bed like you've got to you've got to light it maybe sing a song and then you got to quickly put it out it's very very dangerous i don't recommend it they can only be lit under uh, for a short period of time and under watchful supervision now if you fast forward a couple of hundred years hop across the pond to the united states imagine it's 1882 and a man named edward johnson was the vice president of the Edison Electric Company. And he was trying to market this new and amazing light bulb that his amazing partner, Thomas Edison, like the Thomas Edison, ever heard of him, had recently invented. Okay, And so he was trying to figure out, his job was, how do we get this great invention uh, into every single home in America? And so Johnson had an idea. And so... Uh, in his East 36th Street apartment in New York City, it was on the ground floor, and it's got this, this window uh, towards the street. He took a decorated Christmas tree, and he strung together 80 electric lights of red, white, and blue. And he set up this Christmas tree. Now, you have to imagine, no one had ever seen anything like this before. And word got out. Newspapers started to spread the news. It's become a big deal. People would flock to East 36th Street to see the miracle. See, before there was the miracle on 34th Street, there was the miracle on 36th Street. Crowds of people came to see the first ever Christmas tree decorated with electric lights. One reporter wrote this. In the parlor was a large Christmas tree presenting a most picturesque and uncanny aspect. It was brilliantly lighted with 80 lights all encased in these dainty glass eggs and about all equally divided between white, red, and blue. One can hardly imagine anything prettier. Eventually, electricity became standard in every home 
And as the cost for bulbs became reasonable, Christmas lights soon became a widespread tradition. To the point where today we expect Christmas lights. We expect that as you drive around, without even having to go look for them, you're going to see Christmas lights. And then we even, in fact, go like Google, like who has the best lights? And we go and we get our hot chocolate and we go drive around to see them. Even with the cost of gas being what it is, people will go to see lights. And we light up our homes and our bushes and trees. There's candle lights and windows and strands of lit garland and, of course, Christmas trees. And not only does it provide extra light for the darkest time of year, not only is it visually beautiful, it's also very symbolic because Christmas is all about the inbreaking of light into a world of darkness. And this Advent, we're tracing this biblical theme of light called the light shines in the darkness. And we're looking at different passages that talk about how the light of the world has come. Last week we saw this promise in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Matthew 4 will directly say that Jesus is that promised light of Isaiah 9. And in today's passage, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, he's also going to riff on these themes in Isaiah 9. And he tells us that Jesus is the light that has come to shine in the darkness. Now traditionally, if you're looking for the Christmas story, kind of the facts of what happened, you're going to want to go to Matthew and Luke They give you the facts and the story of Christmas with Mary and Joseph, the angels, the shepherds. There's going to be baby Jesus placed in the manger. And if you want that, I highly recommend it. Go to Matthew and Luke. But John's gospel, what we just read, is his Christmas story. He's not as much as interested in the facts of Christmas, but telling us the implications of Christmas. Not so much what happened, but what Christmas means. And this morning, as we work our way through John chapter 1, we want to focus on this theme of light shining in the darkness. So when the light shines into the darkness, what does it bring? And we'll see that the light brings life, truth, and grace. Those three words, life, truth, and grace are going to be our outline this morning. You see, darkness brings death. It brings confusion. It brings guilt, but life, light brings life, truth, and grace. And this is what Christmas is all about. So let's jump into this chapter, John chapter 1, to see our first point, the light of life. How does light bring life? Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the first three verses of this chapter are masterful. So much is said in so few words. And you may not realize this, but he is simultaneously drawing on both Greek and Hebrew origin stories. So he's going, listen, I want to tell you about a time before time. And I know I have Greek and I have Hebrew audiences. So let me craft something that is going to get both of your attentions. So for the Hebrew reading these verses, if you were of Jewish um, origin, when you 
you read those first words, in the beginning, where does your mind immediately go? Genesis 1. It's how the Bible begins, in the beginning. So immediately the, the Hebrew mind would have started rehearsing this time before time where God has eternally existed and from his glory creation flowed by the power of his word. It complements Genesis 1 and yet this chapter in John 1 goes further. See the word is not simply a synonym for God. John 1, 1 speaks of the word as distinct from God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. There, there distinction there. That's what he means when he says the word was with God and yet at the same time the word was God. And maybe a better translation to help draw out what's happening in the Greek would be to say what God was, the word was. So that last little phrase of he and the word was God. Another way to kind of unpack that is to say what God was, the word was. Or to put it another way, the word was fully God. Whatever it means to be God, that essence, that, that nature, the word also has that. Whatever it is that makes God, God, the word has that godness, that divine nature. And so the point John is making is that the word, and we don't know who the word is yet at this point in the chapter, but he's saying this word, the word shares in the same divine essence as God the Father. You see this come up all over the New Testament, Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the fullness of what it means to be God, not in part, but the whole, all of it resides in this word. See, in a few short words, we're introduced to the eternal word who is at the same time distinct from God, but also equal with God because he shares in the same essence, distinct and as much God as God. Now for the Greeks reading this, Instead of honing in on that in the beginning, they would have honed in on the word. Like the, the word, word. In the Greek, it's logos. See, if you are a philosophy student, you, have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you take a philosophy 101 course, you can't get through it without going, okay, the, in Greek philosophy, the word, the logos, is a really big deal. See, the Greeks were philosophical people. They, 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 they thought often in uh, and, and had much discourse on wh where do we come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Look around the world. There's so many things. What is the, the basic building blocks that make up all of this stuff? What is the purpose? What is the meaning behind everything? And they come to understand that there was something that put sense and rationality into the world in order to bring um, uh, order out of the chaos. They recognize that without some kind of unifying principle, the world would just, would just break into chaos. And they said, whatever it is that is holding all things together, that is the word, the, the logos, the, 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 this divine, rational order. In other words, they, they knew that the world had uh, order and purpose and meaning because of the Logos, because of the Word. And with that background, what John is doing is masterful. He's saying, Greeks, you are absolutely right. There is the Logos that brings order and meaning and purpose to everything that you see. 
But the word is not some abstract principle. He is a person. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In verse 2, we learn that the word is not some impersonal force, but a person. Not an it, but a he. If you read through John 1, verses 1 to 18, John will continuously, without fail, refer to the word as a he. The pronouns he will use for the word are he and him. Now this is both remarkable and intentional because if you know anything about proper grammar, you know that the, the, the correct or grammatically correct pronoun for word is what? It, right? So if, if you were writing a paper and you are talking about the word, like a word, you, you're supposed to use the word it because a word is not a person. It's, it's an it. But John says, well, this word is a little different. This word is not an it, it's a he. Now, unlike today, John lived at a time when people knew how to properly use pronouns. And if you're up to speed on the current cultural conversation, then you understand what I'm talking about. Now, what John is doing is really poor grammar, but it is excellent theology. Because what he's saying is this. There is an eternal logos, the word of God, but he's not an abstract principle. He's not just some rational force out in the world. He is a person. And soon, when we get down to verse 17, we're going to find out that his name is Jesus. Not only that, but John tells us that the word has eternally existed with God and this word was actively involved in creation. In fact, his creation and activity, his activity in creation was so pivotal, so integral that John says, without the word, without him, nothing could have been made that was made. He wasn't just a passive bystander in the creation account. He wasn't just there to observe and be like, God, Father, you're doing so many amazing things. He was actively involved to the point that without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians says it like this, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven, on an earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now think about it. This same one, the same Jesus who was born in obscurity, placed in a feeding trough, is the same one who created the universe and sustains every atom by his own inherent power. It's incredible. In three short verses, John has introduced us to the word. He has drawn in both the Hebrew mind and the, the Greek mind. And he's told us that the word has eternally existed with God, that the word shares in the same essence as God, and that the word like God, is responsible for creation itself. So in other words, if, I, if we wanted to summarize this, that's all that theology is. It's summarizing and synthesizing the biblical data. You could say this. The word shares in the same divine attributes, has the same divine activity, and a divine personality just like God the Father. And so though the identity of the word is yet to be revealed, 
Whoever this word is, we're convinced of his divinity, that this word is God. But John's not done yet. Look at verse 4. He goes on. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now John tells us that life is found in the word, and now he says, he compares the word to light. Now again, think back to the creation account in Genesis. What were the first words of God as he creates? Let there be light. Let there be light. I think John is picking up on that imagery. I think he's picking up on Isaiah, that the people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, it is hard to imagine a world without electricity. But I want you to try for a moment and imagine yourself, uh, the people of this time, electricity does not exist. And so when it's nighttime, it's dark, like really dark. It's rare that any of us experience deep darkness of night because the world around us is constantly lit up. And all the the lights, even at nighttime, all of it produces kind of this glowing effect over where we live so that we, even if you walk outside of your home tonight, you still can kind of see what's going on. Because we, we just do not dwell in a land of deep darkness anymore. But for most of the people who have ever lived, night is a reality of deep darkness that is only overcome by the rising of a great light, the sun. That is why every sunrise to a world without electricity is a beautiful gift. And both Isaiah and John are picking up on this theme. That a world is covered in deep darkness. And that's why meaning is elusive. That's why hope often seems like it only exists in fairy tales. The darkness of our world explains why so many people struggle with addiction. It's why foolishness lingers. It's why we have inordinate, disordered desires. It's why you can feel lonely even when you're surrounded by people. This darkness explains why we are seldom ever content. It explains that low-grade feeling of guilt that lingers. I mean, Christians who know they've been justified by grace still have this, 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 this lingering doubt that maybe I'm not. It's why there's this impulse to hide because of our shame. This this darkness that covers our land explains why we are uncomfortable with our own identity and our own skin. It's why we struggle to change. Darkness explains why there is brokenness all around us. And this darkness explains why all of us have a looming date with death. John is saying, what can overcome this darkness? Only the dawning of a great light. Only the advent of the word. Only the coming of the light. The light that shines in the darkness. And John tells us this light, the light that is coming into the world, will not be conquered or overcome by darkness. Even though there is deep darkness, it will not be able to swallow up the light. See, the word brings forth light. Life, like the dawning of the sun. Think about it. 
Just like the earth needs the light of, of the sun in order to have life, to grow and to thrive, we too need the life and light of the word to shine on us. In the same way that if the sun were to stop shining, life would quickly cease to exist. In the same manner, without the life-giving light of the word, we would have no hope, no chance, no life. Friends, the message of Christmas is that the light of Jesus has dawned on us who live in a land of deep darkness. Tim Keller writes, notice it doesn't say from a, the world a light has sprung, but upon a world a light has dawned. It has come from the outside. There is a light outside of this world and Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. This is precisely why later in John chapter 8, Jesus will say of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is why the Nicene Creed, which was written in around 325, describes Jesus as light from light, true God from true God. Death or darkness brings death, light brings life. This is the message of Christmas, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the word that shines his life-giving light into the darkness. And as the light of that gospel shines, it, it overshadows and overcomes the darkness of guilt, shame, and fear. Every light you see at Christmas time, be it from a Christmas tree or candle, a house or strand, I want you to remember that Jesus is the light of the world. That's what every one of these little incandescent bulbs are telling you. That Jesus is the light of the world who brings life. But not only that, John tells us that the light of Christ brings truth. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now he, John, was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. So the John we find in verse 6 is not the author, the gospel of John. This is John the Baptist. Now, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you know he's a, he, he's, he has a role to play in the Christmas story. His mother is Elizabeth. She's a relative of Mary. And you can read all about the wonderful story of Zechariah and Elizabeth who were well advanced in age, which means they were like closer to death than birth. They were very, very old, well beyond childbearing years. And, 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 and Elizabeth was barren and how this, the, uh, this miracle of, of life was, was placed in her womb as she became pregnant. And when Mary, who was also pregnant with the word, came to see her cousin, that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb, worshiping as Christ entered the room. The apostle John, who knows full well about all of these details, doesn't mention any of them. Why? Because he's laser focused on telling us the meaning of Christmas. And he wants to tell you about John's particular role. So he says, John was not the light. His job was to point people to the light that they might believe in the light. Again, context is so important. These are people who've not had a prophet for 400 years. They, are, they were just used to, if you read through the Old Testament, 
there's someone, like when someone, when a prophet or leader dies, there's always another one that comes. There's always another spokesperson for God. But they've walked in darkness for 400 years. Prophecy has stopped. There has been no word from God. So not only is it dark physically, it is dark spiritually. And they're wondering, has God given up on us? And the Apostle John wants to be really clear that, that, the, that, that as great as it is to have a new spokesperson for God, as great as it is to have a prophet return, John coming onto the scene, friends, is a big deal. And as big as it is, he's not the light. He's pointing us to the light. Think of him like the moon. The moon has no inherent light of its own, right? Just a rock. When you see the moon in the night sky, it is testifying to the reality of the sun. John the Baptist came to point us to that light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So in verse 9, we're told that the true light was coming into the world. Now, it's important to remember that this is just the beginning of John's gospel. Like any other book, you're, you're, you're meant to read the whole thing and then like draw your conclusions after that. Why am I saying that? Well, because when John says the true light, he's setting up something that he's going to do a, a couple more times in, in the book. Because the word true will be used like this in two other places in the gospel. So uh, later on in John chapter 6, Jesus, uh, John will call Jesus the true bread from heaven. So after feeding the 5,000, Jesus is going to give an extended teaching and he makes an analogy. He says, just like our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, which was bread from heaven, like God rained down bread, but now God the Father gives you true bread from heaven. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the true bread from heaven. And then later on in John 15, Jesus is teaching about living a life that's dependent on God. And he uses this analogy of the vine. And in the Old Testament, Israel is frequently depicted as this chosen vine of God. And Jesus would have had no problem saying that Israel is this vine of God. But what does he say? He says, I am the true vine. See, there's light and then there's true light. There's bread and then there's true bread. There's the vine and then there's the true vine. In other words, all of these things are pointing to their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. See, John is making a startling claim about Jesus. He is saying there aren't many lights that bring truth. There's only one true light. It's almost like he's just writing today. That is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. There aren't many breads that bring soul nourishment. There is one true bread. There aren't many vines that can connect you to God. There is one true vine. John is making a claim of exclusivity. There is only one light, one vine, one bread. It's not simply that Jesus is true in the sense that he doesn't lie, that he's, that he's, not, that he's without error or, or simply just like the opposite of false. No, no. What John is saying is that he is full of truth, the embodiment, the, the embodiment of truth, genuine, ultimate. In other words, he is truth itself. In fact, Jesus will say, I am the truth. 
This is a claim against the common notion in our day that each individual gets to decide what truth is as if truth were relative and subjective to the person claiming it. Now, I just want you for a moment to think about what kind of pride it takes to claim to have the power to determine reality. When someone says like, you have your truth and I have my truth, what they're saying is you have the power to define and like determine reality. You just speak it into existence. You know, just like God did. He spoke things into existence. You can speak things into existence. To be able to speak and make it so. See, that's a power and a responsibility reserved for God and God alone. And just think about the kind of pride and foolishness it takes to be able to claim that power for yourself. John is making the claim that Jesus is the true light. The one truth upon which every truth is to be judged. And he goes on and he says, he, Jesus, was in the world. The world was made through him. <clears throat> and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now verse 10 and 11 tell us that though this true light has shined, not everyone's going to receive it. So the, the, the word, the, this true light has shined everywhere, but some people are going to reject it. Why? Because they love the darkness. Many will reject him, even his own countrymen. John, uh, Jesus will expand on this in John chapter 3. Jesus says right after that famous verse, for God so loved the world, he says this. <coughs> This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, some people will reject the true light because they love the darkness. And friends, Jesus will not be a light among your many lights. He, he will not be a truth among your many truths. He will not be a love among your many loves. He will be true light, truth itself, and your foundational love or nothing. You don't get to add him to your pantheon. See, G, uh, Santa Claus is fine to be one among many loves. He's not super jealous. He'll happily take uh, his place among your pantheon of God's He's friends with the Easter Bunny. He's into all that. He doesn't require much. You don't have to give him much. But at the same time, he doesn't offer much either. Santa Claus makes a poor Savior. He is fine if you just think about him at Christmas time and then put him away in the attic for the rest of the year. He minds that not at all. But friends, Jesus is not Santa Claus. He doesn't want your attention at Christmas and Easter he made you, he loves you, and he wants to be your God, not just a figurine in your nativity scene. He is true God from true God, and he will not share his throne with anyone. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what is the proper response to the true light coming into the world? Well, it's to receive him, not reject him. To believe in his name. Do you know that word believe? This is just the very beginning of John's gospel. If you read through the gospel of John, the word believe will come up 98 times. 
98 times, John will say, believe, 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 believe. In fact, at the very end, John will tell us the whole reason he wrote this gospel was this, John 20, 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, when we receive him and believe in his name, we become children of God. Look at verse 13. Who were born, this is so important. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, did you notice? John's telling us well, how, how we become born of God. He gives three negatives and one positive. So three things that don't lead to your birth, in Christ, like your new birth, and then one that does. So here are the three negatives. First, we aren't born into God's family by blood. This is, a, this is a picturing ethnic descent. So like in the Old Covenant... If your two parents were Jewish and you were born, guess what? Child of the, new, of, of the old covenant. You're just, you're just born into it. Christianity, you can't be born into Christianity. If you have two parents who are Christian, you're not born a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Your, your just arrival into the world doesn't make you a Christian. Now, it's an incredibly gracious thing to be born into a Christian family where they're going to love you and disciple you and point you to the Lord. But that birth itself doesn't make you born of God. In the new covenant, the family of God is not determined by ethnicity. And the second negative, he says, we're not born into God's family by will of the flesh. So what does that mean? It means something. Well, you don't get born again by your works or effort. So you can't will it to happen. You can't earn it. You don't do something to be born. Just like physical birth is not because of something you do. Think about the analogy. He's talking about birth. He's saying, think about your physical birth. You didn't birth you. You didn't effort your birth. You had literally nothing to do with it. You were just there. Right? You don't cause your physical birth. You didn't exist in some like primordial place and God didn't come to your little spiritual orb and say, do you want to be born? You weren't consulted at all. Nothing to do with you. Spiritual birth is not something you achieve. That's what he means by will of the flesh. And finally, here's our third negative. We aren't born into God's family by will of man, meaning human decision or choice. Now, probably a lot of you were with me on the first two. Okay, you can't be born into it. Um, and you don't earn it, like this isn't a workspace thing. But when I said it's not through human decision or choice, my Reformed friends were like, amen. And my non-Reformed friends were like, well, hold on. Hold on. This is one people find hard to wrap their minds around. And I think, I, I often thought, like, why do people have a hard time when the Bible says things, like, super clear, and then we make it say the opposite of what it's just plainly saying? Why do we have such a hard time with that? It's because... From day one, every single one of us have been indoctrinated in the culture we live in that personal autonomy is the highest good and the goal of humanity. That your, that, that, that the, it's like, it's just what it means to be an American is that you would pull yourself up by your own bootstraps with no help of anybody else and secure a place of prominence and success. Which even that is a lie. No one pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps. Like, who made your boots to pull you up from? 
You didn't make them. And at the same time, I, I, I grant there's some mystery here. It's hard for our little minds to understand how could it be equally true that you and I make real, free, and consequential human decisions, which you do. And yet at the same time, that your new birth doesn't happen ultimately, decidedly because of your choice. Again, go back to the analogy. There's a reason why John chose the analogy of birth. I did not ultimately choose to be physically born. And in like manner, I did not ultimately choose to be spiritually born. Now, I don't have a lot of time to like keep going into this. We have taught on this so many times. But if you struggle to believe this, I would just encourage you, read this passage several times and wrestle with it. Ask yourself, though, when John says, not born of the flesh or of the will, he means something by those words. They mean something. So what do they mean? And it's really bad Bible reading to already before you wrestle with them go, well, they can't mean this. Okay, that's putting the cart before the horse. That's deciding it doesn't mean what it plainly means before you've even read it. Wrestle with it. It may confront some preconceived ideas, but guess what? That's the point of Scripture, is to confront you. The Bible is not interested in patting you on the back and telling you, You're, you have figured it all out, I'm so proud of you. That's not what the Bible's job is. The Bible's job is to come and say, you've got wrong beliefs, You've got wrong desires, you've got wrong actions, and I'm confronting you about them. The Bible is confrontational. So come to the text with humility and say, Spirit, what does this mean? I would also encourage you, if you really want to dive into it, we preach through the whole gospel of John. Go back especially and listen to John chapter 3 and John chapter 6, where we spend an extended time talking about this reality. I also last year encourage you to listen to our Christmas and the Doctrines of Grace series. Like we made Advent five weeks instead of four weeks and talked all about Reformed uh, Doctrines of Grace theology. And I encourage you, if you really want to spend a few hours diving into this, listen to those sermons. For the, for the sake of time, we've got to keep moving. So if we're not born into God's family by ethnic descent, by human effort, or by my autonomous decision of the will, then how am I born into God's family? I'm glad you asked. John answers it. He says, you are born into God's family by God. You are born of God. He is the one who causes us to be born into his family. And friends, this is actually really good news. I can't for the life of me figure out why you would want it to be based on your effort and your decision. Because if it's based on you, you think too highly of yourself. Like, like, you're, like, like that sin has um, weakened you, but not to the point where you wouldn't just choose God. See, if we relied on ethnic descent, then many ethnicities would be excluded. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There will be people from every people group into the family of God. So it's not based on ethnicity. If, we, if, if being born of God relied on human effort, then who could actually merit, earn, and deserve such a gift? Well, the answer is no one. And if we relied on human choice, a decision of my desire, then who would ultimately choose Christ? Seeing as how the Bible describes us as spiritually dead and enslaved 
to the passions of our flesh. See, you need someone to make you alive and to release you out of the bondage of, of your captivity for you to choose him. The good news of Christmas is that God graciously gives us what we don't deserve, what we could never earn, and what we would never choose on our own to be born into his family. Later in his letters, the same author John in, his, uh, in 1 John 4, 19 will say this. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. We receive Christ. We confess our love for him because his love has come to us first. We don't earn it, deserve it, or choose it. He causes us to be born again. <coughs> and in response, we receive Jesus and believe in his name. Jesus is the light of life and the light of truth. Now finally, let's see our last point that Jesus is the light of grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. There's so much to unpack in these verses in our John series, I preached those verses for 45 minutes, so we're not going to be able to unpack all of it. But here's the big truth, that the word who was eternally with God, the word who created all things, the word who is God, that word took on flesh. May we never get over that. May we, may we never hear that and go, oh yeah, I know that. I know that. We should hear that and just stop and worship. The word took on flesh. That word, this God word, added to his divine nature a human nature. See, he didn't stop being God. He didn't uh, become transformed into another being. He didn't stop being God. He just added a divine nature to his human nature. There has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, when the word gave up, gives up, or will give up his divine nature. But John 1.14 says that in the virgin conception... That the word, who is God, took on flesh in time, space, and in history. This is what Christians call the incarnation. The reality that God has taken on flesh. That God added a human nature to his divine nature. And what we've assumed from the beginning of John's gospel is now revealed. That the word, this true light, is in fact Jesus Christ. And this very act is grace defined. See, you and I could never climb a ladder and work our way up to God. They literally tried that in the Tower of Babel. That was like the whole project. Let's build a tower, a ladder, all the way up to God. And, and they, they didn't even get, like, God, it says God had to come down. Like, they didn't even get close enough where God could see them where he was. He had to come way down and be like, oh, look at your little tower. You can't, the whole point of that story is to say, you cannot climb your way to God. Metaphorically, humanity has been trying to earn their way to God through works ever since. People say it all the time. I'm just trying to be a good person. Problem is it doesn't work. John 1.14 says that God the Son took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to display his infinite glory and unbelievable grace. That, in other words, his glory and his grace is that God comes to us. That's why Jesus is Emmanuel. You know what that means? God 
with us. It's the beauty of Christmas. Even that word dwelt speaks to this gracious reality. If you were to see this in Greek, you would see it's the word for tabernacle, but in verbal form. You know how we take nouns and make them verbs? Like there was a noun called Google. It was a company. And, and what did we do? We made it a verb. You, you, you can Google it. I Googled it. We do this all the time. Language is awesome. We take nouns and we verbalize them. That's what this word is. They took the idea of the tabernacle, this place where the presence of God dwelled. And what John says is the word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. It, 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 the, the imagery here would have been like, so what you're saying is, just like in the Old Testament, how the presence of God dwelt among the people in the temple, he's saying that's what happened when Jesus came. The very presence and person of God came to dwell among us. See, there are many places. God is omnipresent. He is literally everywhere. But there are places where the very presence of God dwells in a different kind of way, in a particular kind of way. And John is saying, in Christ, the like true God from true God was here. See, God doesn't send a messenger. He doesn't merely send an ambassador. When God is ready to enact his divine rescue plan, he sends himself. God comes down to us. And not only does he come to dwell, but he comes to die. See, to get to the hope and joy of Christmas, we've got to see that Jesus was always destined for the cross. The God the Son takes on flesh not only to identify with us, but also to die for us. See, in the prophecy, it's, it's there. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And Isaiah will continue to unpack what it means for a son to be given all the way into the servant songs as the servant of Israel is crucified for us. See, the child to be born is given as an offering for our sins in our place. Think about flesh. It's, it's by its very nature vulnerable. There's nothing vulnerable about the divine nature. Like God's divine nature is utterly limitless. All-powerful, all-knowing, all the alls in all. But he takes on a human nature that is fleshy and it's utterly limited. The word become flesh means that the word became killable. In 1964 in Kew Gardens, which is a neighborhood in New York City, there's a very famous tragic story about a 28-year-old uh, woman named Kitty Genovese. And she was going home to her apartment and she was assaulted on the street by an assailant. And I know this isn't very Christmassy, but hang with me. She cried out for help. Her life was on the brink. People heard her, but sadly, no one came down. People in the apartments around her heard her cries for help, but no one came down. No one answered her call. And sadly and tragically, Kitty was murdered that night. Now this story garnered a lot of media attention. You can go back and, and look at it. And, um, but in the police reports, it, in the aftermath, it became clear. People heard the cry. Some people called the police. But ultimately, no one came down. No one came to her rescue. 
And before we cast judgment on all these, uh, these people, we ask ourselves, what, what would we do in that same situation? Because it's, it's not hard to figure out. What does going to help mean? What happens if you leave your apartment? What are you doing in that moment? You're putting your life on the line. Your life now becomes at risk. You stay in your apartment, you're safe. But the moment you step out that door and you go down, your flesh becomes killable. You have put yourself in the line. In psychology classrooms, this this story became a case study for what is known as the bystander effect, where people just assume someone else will answer the call for help. John is stating in his gospel, as he gives us this Christmas story with the focus on the incarnation, he is making a dramatic point. That with our cries for help, not only did Jesus hear them, but he came down. He didn't call someone else. He didn't assume somebody else would come down. He came down Himself. And what's more, see, in the Kew Garden story, it wasn't inevitable that someone would die. They were were putting their life on the line. There was a risk. It, It was potentially true that they could die. But see, when Jesus came, it wasn't merely at the risk of his life. There wasn't a, like, a possibility, a chance that he would die. He came knowing full well that his mission was to save people from the penalty of their sins. And he knew that meant necessarily, inevitably, he was going to die. This is the grace of Christmas. That the word became flesh. That the word became vulnerable. That the word came to give up his life for us. So friends, I hope you hang lots of lights this year. Put them everywhere. Get some hot chocolate. Go drive around to see lights. And as you do, let each light remind you of the light of the world. Jesus Christ, who the very dawning of his light brings life. Who himself is the truth upon which all other truths are to be dwelt or, or to be determined. And who is for us grace upon grace. Let's pray.